local stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Coming up, a conversation with John McEnroe about the life and legacy of his friend, Arthur Ashe. But first, there was big news last week in the world of college basketball. The highly regarded high school center, McCore Maker, announced he would attend, not Kentucky or Memphis or UCLA, which had all recruited him. He wouldn't attend any of the traditional powerhouses, but instead, Howard, the historically black university in Washington, D.C. To discuss that story and others, we welcome the MVP of Super Bowl XXII, a pioneer in pro football, and both a graduate of and the former head coach at Grambling, the historically black university in northern Louisiana, Doug Williams. Doug, thank you for being with us. My, my pleasure, Jeremy. How have you, uh, how have you been coping uh, with the state of affairs in the world for the last four months? Of course, the pandemic and the developments in the last six weeks since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Well, I'm getting a lot better from the Zoom standpoint, but, you know, dealing with calls and, and people talking, interviews and town halls with, you know, we had a couple of town halls with the uh, organization and, you know, just trying to get people to talk about what's going on in this world. And, you know, like I told them, uh, Jeremy, you know, my age right now, I was this like the second coming of um, the civil rights movement for me because, you know, I was born... I was like 10 years old during that time, 10 to 12 years old during the last civil rights movement back in 65, 6, and 7, and 8. And um, to see this movement is a little different from the past movement. You know, we had them black and white TVs, and you can you can see when the police were sticking dogs and, and putting water holes on them. This time is a little different. It's so much diverse uh, involved in this movement. And I think this is a better, way better movement. Um, than it was back then, but I think because the world has changed a lot since that time. What are the things you've been thinking about, Doug, as as we've seen the protests and we've seen the outrage um, and we've seen such a strong reaction, as you say, transcending race? Well, well you know, for me, it's, it's almost a numbing type of feeling because, you know, growing up in the South, we, we understood, you know, my, my parents told us what we could and we couldn't do. Uh, but to watch these youngsters today come out, you know, black, white, all kind of ethnicity, come out and, 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 and band together for one common cause, and that was for equality. You know, it's, it's like a numbing feeling to see it. I, you know, I probably spend more time uh, in front of the television just watching because it's almost like you can't believe your eyes that this is happening, that you see people coming together for one common cause. And it's so unfortunate that everybody really, really can't see. And I know everybody's never going to look at things the same way. But, but to see that is all about people. It's about, about human beings being treated the way that they should be treated. Doug, you played um, college ball for Eddie Robinson, the legendary Grambling coach who was the coach there before Pearl Harbor and up until the late 1990s. I guess it was a 60-year run, Freddie Robinson. And you made history as a pioneer, of course, in the NFL, as uh, the first black quarterback to win the Super Bowl, um, that game in 1988, that spectacular game you had. What does it mean as uh, one of the most famous 
Grambling graduates, if not the most famous Grambling graduates, that McCore Maker has made this decision to go to Howard in uh, your adopted hometown. Wow, man! It's uh, you know when reading that story and watching that story, it's it's, it's a good feeling. I the guy I thought about more than anything was uh, Willis Reed. <laughs> you know, Willis Reed having gone to Grambling, and, and you know I call Willis every now and then, and I'm wondering. What would Willis Reed have done if he, he was coming out today? And to see this young man make that decision, I don't know who his parents are. You know, I don't know anybody in his family. But that was a, a gutsy, tough, wonderful decision. It all depends on how you look at it. And, and basketball, it's a little different because it only takes a guy like him and one or two more to have a pretty good basketball team. And it's all going to be all about his individual skills. That's what. I think that's what a lot of um, the other guys don't really understand. This guy probably gets it, that it's not about where you go. It's what you do wherever you go. And I know that the black colleges have not put out as many top uh, NBA players over the years, but because we haven't had that type of talent go in there with that type of skill. So it's hard to put first-rounders out if you don't get them in. And this guy, this kid's probably going in with, with first round rolled on his talent is up to him to um, just expand his game to, to get to that point. So I don't think it's where it goes. It's, it's the idea of doing what you do wherever you are. And he, he believes in himself, and it's all about where he feels comfortable. And I think that was a great move for him and black colleges. And, Doug, you know from the inside at Grambling, doing the job at Grambling, how tough it is to recruit, how tough it has been to recruit the top athletes, the top players to historically black colleges and universities over the last couple of generations. What kind of a watershed do you think this is for Howard, taking that into consideration? Well, I, th- I think what it does for Howard is it gives them instant recognition in basketball, number one. But also it gives uh, historical black colleges some recognition. And I think what it does to bring attention to a lot of other young guys out there with talent, and they say, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it. And that's all it takes. You know, it's kind of like that old movie, uh, Fields of Dreams. They say you build it and it will come. <laughs> and it's one of them things. It's going to take a few guys to make those type of decisions for the guys that we lost, what, three, uh, 40, 30, 30, 40 years ago when we had nowhere to go but the exterior black colleges to come back home, per se. And not, it's not going to be in droves. That's not going to happen. We, are, we understand that. But it don't take but a few to start a few more to come in and get a little more attention to the historical black institution. We're speaking with Doug Williams, the MVP of Super Bowl twenty two, the legendary pro quarterback, uh, who is now an executive and has been for some time with the Washington Redskins, a senior vice president. Doug, of course, the news this week that the Redskins are considering a name change. And I know uh it's difficult for you to talk about the organization as an employee. But let's let's assume that the name does get changed. What what will that mean to you? Well, now, that's interesting because I've I've talked to um, a few of my teammates, and, and we kind of in the same boat is the fact that you know we wear Super Bowl rings with Washington Redskins on, and uh, I'm sure it's not going to get changed. But but at the end of the day, we we all came to the conclusion that you know that day in San Diego for us. It, it wasn't about the name as much as the game. And, and we're the one who performed, and it wasn't the name. And we got to look at it from that standpoint. That's a history-making situation 
that's never going to change no matter what the name changed to. And, and that's how we got to look at this thing. You know, the name changes is out of all our hands. Like I, I told somebody, as a player, as an employee, and even the players today shouldn't have any say-so at all on what the name become because that's not your job. And it's only only four guys, I guess. It's Mr. Snyder and the minority owners. It's, it's up to them to come up with that. It's our job just to, to wait and see and work for them or what have you. But as far as what it means to us as players um, over the years, you know, you can't take that away. You, you can't take three Super Bowl trophies away uh, and say you got to change the name on those trophies because that won't happen. We, we want it as, as Redskins, and, and that's going to go down in history. I understand, Doug, you know, that it's, it's, it's tough sometimes. Players are put in a difficult position, other employees of the organization. But, but it seems to be – you seem to be saying, like, you don't think the players should – should offer their opinions about it. Is that is that how you feel? Well, what, what I'm saying is not so much offered as an opinion, but I think it's unfair to put them in a tough position to, and, and I'm saying this from the standpoint, I don't think they should come out and say, hey, this is what it should be or it should not be. I think if you get into a conversation, and, and my thing, I would, I would have wished that, you know, with so many guys that lived around this area, it would have been so much better if we, we all could have, well, you can't sit around because of what's going on. But we showed could zoom around, you know, and, and just talked about what's going on. I mean, we understood, saying that it's uh, from a dictionary standpoint, it is a slur, and it's no different than, than we getting caught up and people calling us name or we calling other people name or what have you. And you don't want nobody to feel slight. And with that said, you know, you got to look at it for what it's worth. And if it's time to make a change, I think we all got to just say, hey, Let's do what we have to do. But as far as a player, because I think the, the, from a player standpoint, what's going to happen is the, the community uh, going to look at it from a different way. Because, you know, you're going to have you're gonna have a half a dozen people think it's right and a half a dozen people think it's wrong. And I don't think it's fair for the player to have to go up in that scrutiny when they didn't ask to, to be playing here in Washington. You know, they, they could have been playing somewhere else. Uh, they were chosen to come here and, and to put them in that situation. I think is unfair. Doug, what's your what's your gut tell you about football this fall? There are going to be games. What it's going to look like? Well, you know, I said a long time ago. You know, before we got to this, uh, I was talking. Me and James Harris, Shaq Harris, were talking, and he was he asked me the same question. And the way thing was going, I say we're going to play two preseason games and, and probably play. But what has transpired over the last week? It kind of got me nervous right now because watching the map of the, of the United States and the color of that map, uh, it don't look near as well as it did two weeks ago. And and, and that's a scary look, scary feeling. And, and, and for the Irish League to cancel their whole season and a couple other colleges, I mean, it, it's an interesting situation. I mean, we as football, we, we got a little more, little more time than, than most of the sports. Uh, but we don't know how that map will change within the next month or so. I think it's it's going to be interesting. That is, I think that's the right word, Doug. Uh, it's such a pleasure always to speak to you. Thank you so much for making the time. It's great to hear that you're well and healthy. Stay safe. Doug, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Y'all take care. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. 
45 years ago this week, Arthur Ashe became the first and still the only black man to win the Wimbledon singles title. It was a four-set win over world number one Jimmy Connors, the top seed. Ashe was the sixth seed. It was the crowning achievement of Ashe's tennis career, a career in which he'd already become the first black man to win the U.S. Open and the Australian Open. More than just a champion on the court, Ash was a champion in the struggle for civil rights here in the U.S. and across the globe. John McEnroe was Ash's Davis Cup teammate and friend. Ash was also McEnroe's Davis Cup captain. McEnroe joined me on Outside the Lines for a conversation about Ash's life and legacy. What do you miss most about Arthur Ash, John? God, it's hard to know where to begin with that one. He taught me a lot. He mentored me. His compassion for one, his discipline for two, uh, his uh, ability to sort of brush things off, all of which things I had problems with. So he was a great guy to hang out with, particularly when he was Davis Cup captain. We had a lot of great conversations. He taught me a lot. We didn't often talk about tennis. We got into other arenas, politics, the world in general. And, uh, you know, I... I still miss him greatly to this day. Uh, I didn't realize at the time what he had to go through, to what extent he had to go through, not only being an African-American, a black man in in a white man's game, but in society in general and how he behaved and was able to handle himself. Um, And I often wondered, because I remember reading in his book, he talked about living vicariously through me because of some of the antics. (laughs) admittedly some were over the top but uh that he sort of wished he was able to do some of the things that i was able to do sort of get away with it i guess maybe would be one way of putting it and it's sort of sad that he wasn't able to uh maybe ever be completely himself what do you what do you mean by that how could he i mean obviously you can understand uh he, he didn't behave necessarily the way that you did on the court, but um, you mean he couldn't really be himself as a person? Well, I he think couldn't... he was more of himself off the court. You know, I think he felt like he, he needed to act a certain way. Otherwise he would be looked at a lot more closely than the other players, which was, is, was and still is obviously true. And I often wondered because at 37, I believe he was, six months after we played the only two times we ever played at Madison Square Garden, I was thought to myself, why does he keep everything in? He doesn't do that when I'm around him. When we're off the court, we're having dinner, we're discussing things. But on the court, he was very bottled up and reserved. And I said, this is a type of situation where some, he's going to have a heart attack or, or something's going to happen. I, I thought a bit with Bjorn Borg and I thought about it with Arthur Ashe. And um, un, uh, I, I, unbelievably, it actually did happen. I think the stress and, you know, what he had to go through and what he tried to represent as a human being was something. And I was a young kid. I'm 61 now. I understand a lot more. I look back at it and, and, and wish that I had more time with him because I felt like I could have learned more. But at the time, I was sort of couldn't understand him. I couldn't understand sometimes the way he was acting, the things he would say. And, 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 and now looking back, I, I get it more, that he was he forced to do it, I, I would venture to say, in a, in a lot of cases. Say things perhaps he didn't want to say and not be able to say things he did want to say. But he did, of course make bold and important statements on so many issues. Um, What made Arthur Ashe 
such an important figure, a figure who made such a big impact on the world, not only of sports and tennis, but beyond? Well, that's difficult to say. Um, way back when, and, and to some degree even now, I mean, they talk about why couldn't a, a black player be a quarterback? Well, he wasn't smart enough. You know, and, and, and so therefore, they've got to be placed in other positions. And I think that people understand how untrue that is, obviously, today. But it took a long time. When Arthur played Jimmy Connors in 1975, he threw a completely different plan of attack at him. Didn't play at all like the way he had played for most of his career. It was like a brilliant strategic move, threw Jimmy off completely. Actually did the same thing to me the second time we played and had double match point on me, and I sort of didn't know what hit me. So I think from that standpoint alone, you know, his intelligence um, was something that was obvious. And, and so from that point forward, I think he, he was able to be taken more seriously as an athlete, obviously. He had won numerous Grand Slams. He was a tremendous player. And obviously, he was, one of the, was the first African-American male to ever win a, a Grand Slam event. So that burden was on him, how he would handle that moving forward. And as time went on, I think he got more and more comfortable expressing himself. I mean, he's a pretty reserved guy. He had to put up with a lot, obviously, growing up in the South and in, throughout his life. I don't think when he got AIDS, that was something that he wanted to talk about and come out with until someone wrote about it. I, I forgot who it was. I think it was Doug Smith in USA Today wrote about it. And he was he going to write about, about it, and, and Arthur Ashe preempted him with a press conference, yeah. Which, which was, you know, it, it was too bad that he wasn't able to do it on his own terms. But nonetheless, as time went on, um, and, you know, I remember uh, he, he made a trip to South Africa, and he played there. Um, and a couple of years later, I was offered a tremendous sum of money at the time to play Bjorn Borg in, in an exhibition down there. And uh, Arthur had a, a numerous conversations with my father, uh, talked to me and, 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 and said, listen, you know, I've been there. I, I, I don't think you should go there. And I think that, that one of the greatest decisions I ever made as a, as a human being was not to buy into what was going on down there with apartheid. And uh, the karma that I received, the positive vibes, you know, down for the past 30, 40 years is, is something that's meant a tremendous amount to me. And Arthur had a lot to do with that. So, um, yeah, as, as time has gone on, I think players in general, tennis players particularly, understand how important a figure he, he was and, and is. And I only wish that the stadium that was named after him, where they played the U.S. Open, he beat her he would have been around to see it. John, next week would be Arthur Ashe's 77th birthday. What do you think, if he were alive, he'd have to say about the current situation in the U.S., about the social justice issues, the protest movement that we've seen, um, uh, particularly in the last five weeks? You know, it's a great question. Uh, and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, I think that he would, he would have thought and said that this is long overdue. Um, this has been going on for generations. Uh, not enough has been done. The frustration level combined with this pandemic have put, you know, people over the top. And it's about time that we as a society do something about it and that everyone is fairly represented. And he would have been at the forefront of that. This is, you know, a, a tricky situation because this has happened before. Been there, done that to some degree, and not much has changed. Not enough has changed. Um, and I think as he, he would have gotten older, he probably would have been 
pushed into doing something more political, maybe even running for office. So, you know, Lord knows what he could have done. He could have done anything as far as I, I'm concerned. And he, he would have been involved for sure. Um, he would have been disconcerted at, at some of the things that have been going on. I think that uh, some of the protesters have gone over the top and hurt, hurt their own cause, a, a cause that I believe is noble. And uh, I believe is it hopefully finally this time will make a real difference. But um, I, as an example, I, I, I think we were talking just a few minutes ago before we went on air and talking about Arthur Ashe's monument. And, you know, to me, as a friend and someone who uh, he meant a lot to and me in so many ways into our sport, obviously, to see someone deface his monument after what he went through throughout his life and the way his life ended is an absolute disgrace as far as I'm concerned. It's sad. Um, it seems like uh, – for reasons that I don't understand, there's still issues that have to be dealt with, and it's a process, but the quicker it's handled, the better to me. It was defaced, his monument in Richmond, which was erected in 1996, and someone had spray-painted the words, white lives matter on it. When you heard that, what was your reaction? I just, I just feel just disappointed that uh, we're veering off. Whoever did that feels, number one, the need to do that. I don't think they could possibly understand or, or know someone like Arthur Ashe. And if they had, they never would have thought uh, about that. And, and, and that's not what it's about right now. What, what it's about right now is that African-American black people, the Black Lives Matter movement, is what it should be dealt with at this particular time. Whatever re parts of society we need to work on, whether it's police reform, Etc. All that has to be dealt with, but to get, to go there right now and put something like that on at this particular time, I just I just don't think that that that's what should have been done. And I think the person was completely missing the point. John, it's been twenty seven years now since Arthur Ashe's death, um, and in that time, we've seen tremendous success in tennis uh, from black women starting with Serena Williams. But we have not seen in the last 27 years another black man win a Grand Slam singles title. Uh, in fact, Arthur Ashe and Yannick Noah remain the only two black men to win singles titles, uh, black men to win singles titles. Um, how do you think he would feel about that? Well, he'd be disappointed that not enough has changed. If anything, in my sport, uh, it's more difficult for uh, people, uh, minorities, or people with low income. It's more expensive than it's ever been uh, to get out there. The cost of it is prohibitive. There's not enough opportunity. And um, accessibility and uh, the affordability, as, as I've discussed, is just over the top. And because of that, uh, that's separated. It's like the game of the 1% in a way. And um, I don't think anyone wants that at, at this particular juncture. As, as far as I know, I can't think of one person. I've, been, I've had a charity and a tennis academy for the past 10 years, and my goal is and will continue to be to try to find an Arthur Ashe, a Michael Jordan, that, to, to get back on a tennis court, give them the opportunity, and pick up a U.S. Open trophy and put it over their heads. I mean, Serena Williams, obviously, she's the greatest female 
athlete, one of the greatest athletes, period, of all time. She's unbelievable. Venus was also amazing. But when you look at their success, I mean, they're two of the five greatest players that ever lived. Has that translated enough, um, even to the women's game? I'd like to see even more uh, younger girls. I think there's more opportunity, and thanks to Billie Jean King with Title IX way back when, and equal prize money. The playing field's more level in tennis than I think than any other sport uh, for young girls, which is great. And I'm hoping that it will become that way um, for the young boys as well. But you need to have a cool factor and some type of sexy factor. And I think tennis has lost sight of that. You need personality, for example. We're going veering off topic, but uh, uh, he, he, he would uh, – despite the fact that he was very reserved a la Bjorn Borg, I think he would have encouraged, like he did with me. He took me on his wing and he had people accept me when I was 19 years old and I was this so-called super brat and pain in everyone's rear end. And here he is asking me to play doubles at an event in Washington, D.C. when I was still in college and telling everyone to calm down. This, this guy's great for the game and he's going to be all right. So, uh, you know, I've got goosebumps right now just thinking about the fact that he he did that for me, and I'm, I'm forever thankful. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Lou Gehrig, the Iron Horse, is one of the essential figures in American sports. And now there is a new book that is an essential addition to his story. At least those are the words I used in a blurb for this new book. It's Lou Gehrig's Lost Memoir with a biographical essay by the man who joins us now. He's also the editor of this volume, Alan D. Gaff. Alan, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for the invitation, Jeremy. It's great to be with you. Well, as I as I said, and I'm going to quote myself again, which uh, I, I am wont to do. It's it's a despicable habit, but nevertheless, I said in the blurb, "Lost no more." Lou Gehrig, the Lost Memoir, is a remarkable find and brings the Iron Horse to life in a new, compelling way. I have to say, when I was made aware of the existence of this so-called lost memoir, I was surprised, and I suspect you might have been as well. Alan. Totally. I was working on another project when I just happened to stumble upon uh, Gehrig's memoirs in a, a series of columns in the Oakland Tribune. And I realized at the time it was rather special. I didn't realize how special it was until I did some background research and uh, started to put the book together. I mean, you're being modest, Alan. This is a remarkable find. This is the kind of thing a scholar such as yourself, and you are a historian, um, you know, you, uh, you dream of stumbling upon something like this. Uh, how did it happen? Well, that's exactly what I did. I was <laughs> researching a book um, that was published in 2005 on World War One. In the process, I found two members of the Lost Battalion, the unit that I described, uh, ran into trouble with it during the Prohibition era. I was going to do a, an article, background of both men, as well as bookending an article about them. So that's what I was doing research on when I happened to stumble upon Lou Gehrig's columns. And it was like, wow, the first thing I did, I I ignored the article I was starting to work on. And I found all the columns and read through them and was just amazed 
like everyone else is now that uh, get us a chance to read through them. What does Gehrig tell us about his life up to this point in these columns that have now been compiled in the book, uh, which you are the editor of and uh, which you contribute a biographical essay to? Again, it's Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. What, what does he tell us about himself that we didn't know? Well, he begins with his childhood as uh, a self-described fat kid who was bullied by his peers also because he didn't speak English until he went to uh, to school at the age of five. Grew up in a German neighborhood on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, uh, Yorkville. Yorkville, uh, yeah. And it continues on from his childhood on through his uh, days at Commerce High School in New York City, his days at Columbia University, on to being a, a Yankee temporarily until he's sent back to the uh, minor leagues at Hartford for a couple years. Then he becomes a real-life full-fledged Yankee in 1925 and continues on through the World Series of 1927. When we think about Gehrig now, of course, we think about his tremendous achievements as a player, arguably one of the five or six greatest baseball players of all time, the remarkable numbers that he amassed batting behind Babe Ruth in the Yankees lineup for a number of years, as you say, starting in 1925. Um, And we think about the circumstances, of course, of his demise and the disease uh, which is now named for him, uh, ALS. Why, Why does Gehrig continue to occupy such a large part of the American consciousness? It was because he was such a unique individual. He was shy. He was modest. He shunned crowds. He didn't want publicity. Uh, Totally the opposite of a lot of stars uh, in sports today. Of of Babe Ruth, for instance, his his teammate. Oh, my God. (laughs) Babe Ruth lived for the spotlight in anything he did. He was an expert at baseball womanizing, drinking, eating, swearing, belching, (laughs) you name it. He wanted to be the best at everything that he did in his life. Lou was just the opposite. As a matter of fact, I think Lou was rather amused at all the antics that that Babe had gone through uh, in the time that the two men were together. They're about... I guess they're nine years apart in age, nine or 10, depending on whether you accept 1894, 1895 is Babe Ruth's birth year. I think most people now accept 1894, and Gehrig was born in 1903. By the time Gehrig gets to the Yankees as a regular, by the time he becomes a regular, I should say, 1925, famously replacing Wally Pip in the lineup, uh, Babe Ruth has been the best player in baseball for half a decade. What was that relationship like? I think the best way to describe it is Babe Ruth became Lou's big brother. When he first broke in with the Yankees, he was just another kid that was going to try and make the team. And after he was sent to the minors, Babe Ruth kind of dismissed him until he became a regular in 1925, like we discussed. And then he began to help him with his hitting. One of the things he was famous for was telling Gary, hit home runs in right field. You don't need to hit long flies to left and center, put your power into pulling the ball and hit home runs like I do. The short porch at Yankee Stadium in right field, only about 290 feet, is that right, at that time? It was friendly, that's for sure. It was friendly. We're speaking to the historian Alan Gaff about the new book, 
Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir, which is the product of his archival find. Uh, these columns that Gehrig wrote when he was still a very young player um, that were syndicated. Well, as a, as a scholar, as someone um, who who unearthed these columns, Alan, you know, what was the protocol like in those days when um, when such stories would appear under the bylines of athletes themselves in newspapers? How much involvement did they have? It wasn't Lou, obviously, at a typewriter typing it himself. In most cases, uh, there were ghost writers for the famous stars, but Lou had two years of college, so he was an educated man in comparison with a lot of the ballplayers of his era. And in my opinion, I believe... Lou wrote the first part of his memoir and had help from Ford Frick when it came time to do the World Series columns because the World Series columns were very time-sensitive. If they weren't filed the day after uh, the game, before the next game, uh, they were out of date and totally useless for a newspaper. We've tried to um, do some comparisons of language in Lou's memoir, as opposed to uh, other things that we know were ghostwritten, but unfortunately that's come up as inconclusive, inconclusive in the in the computer test. So uh, we we aren't able to say exactly for sure that Lou wrote the first part of his memoir, but I am convinced that he did. And of course, Ford Frick, uh, who is uh, best remembered today as the future president uh, or commissioner of baseball, uh, who who all but affixed um, an asterisk to Roger Maris's record in 1961 when he broke Babe Ruth's 60 home runs in 162 games as opposed to 154 games. Frick, who had been a very close friend of Babe Ruth's and his ghostwriter as well, was at that time in the 20s still writing himself, a newspaper man. Um, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I, I assume that Gehrig might be doing what the other stars did, uh, which was you know, dictating some thoughts, having them expanded upon, elaborated upon. In some cases, of course, wholly fabricated by sports writers at the time. What makes you think Gehrig was doing this himself? One of the things that comes through in everything that Lou did personally was his trademark humility, which is best exemplified by his speech at Yankee Stadium on his retirement. He exudes that in the first part of the memoir. And he has a unique style. I think the style in the memoir, as opposed to the World Series columns, are different enough that you could tell the difference. But I think the big thing was when he signed the contract, he agreed to do daily columns. As the season progressed in August and September, he realized that's not working out well. So it came from a daily column to three times a week, and then it became sporadic. If he had employed a ghostwriter, that ghostwriter would have been sure to have everything done on a, on a timeline where he would get paid right away. And this is about 1927. This is about Murderer's Row, the most famous team ever assembled in baseball, uh, a team that for a long time, uh, 27 years held the record for most regular season wins in the American League and is still considered today arguably the greatest team of all time. Um, how did Lou Gehrig fit into this team? 
the great Murderers Row Yankees of 27, which weren't just Ruth and Gehrig, but also Lazari and Coombs and Musel um, and uh, the great pitching staff. Um, how did How did he fit in as a teammate? Well, I think nowadays when people refer to the 1927 Yankees, the first thing they think of or mention is Babe Ruth and his 60 home runs. But if you look at the statistics, over the course of the year, Lou Gehrig had significantly more bases total than Ruth did, which is fantastic considering the fact that those 60 home runs came immediately before he came to bat. Lou's statistics, I believe, in 1927 entitled him to the 1927 um, American League Most Valuable Player Award, just for that reason, if nothing else. It, it certainly wasn't his base running or his fielding. He was never very adept at either. If it hadn't been for his hitting, I don't think he would be more than just an average ball player from that era, but his hitting is what made him an outstanding person. Just incredible, incredible hitter, of course, and someone... Um, because of the tragedy of his story and the depiction uh, on film, Gary Cooper, of course, as Lou Gehrig and pride of the Yankees, he continues to endure in uh, uh, the history of the pastime and beyond. The new book is Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. It really is a remarkable find. Uh, and the man who found it was Alan D. Gaff. Alan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for um, for... for What's the right word, I guess, for finding this book and and uh, putting it together in the form that we now have it in? Well, thank you. And I should mention that when I started this project, I was always referring to Lou Gehrig. By the time I was done, he was just plain Lou. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.